This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. As you can see from the title of this episode, this is likely going to be the last episode uh, ever at the podcast. At the very least, I'll say I'm taking an, an extended break that I don't know the end of. And uh, the reason behind that is simply time has gone on. We've been doing this for four and a half years. And uh, during that time, uh, my life has gotten a little bit busier and there's less of it uh, to be able to devote uh, to the podcast. So I'm afraid I'm going to be walking away. Uh, But uh, to say goodbye, uh, it only seemed right to invite back Ben Philippe, who this will be his fourth visit to the podcast. And he always stated in the past how at some point he wanted to be the one to interview me. And so the last episode, I gave him the chance to do that. And he was so great to join me. So glad uh, to have gotten to know Ben through this. And so we sit down and you end up learning about more about me uh, than maybe you ever wanted to know. Uh, so great conversation. Again, thanks so much to Ben. Hope you enjoy it. So listen in. Hello, my name is Ben Philippe, and I am honored to be here for this very, very, very special episode of What Book Hooked You with Brock Shelley. Uh, Brock, why is this episode so special? It is our final episode of the podcast. It's the final episode of the podcast. First of all, uh, thank you for booking me for the, <laughs> what's after, threequel, tetraquel, quartal? Oh no, yeah. What is yeah. fourth? I don't think few are few are courageous enough to to do a fourth. So come back of uh, basically at this point, I'm like the regular guest star exactly. of the podcast. <laughs> um, so we'll jump right in. Why is the podcast ending, Brock? Why is the podcast ending? Really, it's so it's been four and a half years, and have enjoyed it, but. It's started to not take a toll, but it started to feel more like a chore than a pastime. Uh, so it just felt like, and there's personal things in life, just work is a lot busier now. Family life, there's uh, more going on. So it just felt like something had to give. And unfortunately, the podcast ended up being that thing. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds from this description that you're saying that you're a real person with other stuff <laughs> going on and not just here for our entertainment. Pretty much. Yeah. But, and it's, you know, I never like to say, oh, I'm too busy. Like I never like to, uh, you know, use that excuse, but uh, it's just, again, part of it, part of it is uh it's kind of lost its luster. Like I said, become a little bit more of a chore. But the other thing is there are other things going on. You know, four and a half years ago, um, my life was at a very much a different place than it is now. So the podcast was something we had to uh, cast aside, I'm afraid. Oh, that brings me to my very first question. Well, my second question at this point, this is the perfect transition to the question I wanted to ask, which is, why did you start the podcast? What was the inspiration for it? Um, you know, I think everybody over the age of 10 at some <laughs> point gets the urge to start a podcast. Sure. 
Um, some of us bravely make it three episodes in before they stop going over to Brooklyn because oh God, it's so far away. Um, but where did it come from? Why did you want to make a top a podcast on this topic? So we're 2017. Mm-hmm. It was early in the year. So a couple things were going on. One, I just felt I was a little bored. I needed a a hobby is what I would say. And also 2017, uh, it was just after the inauguration. I was doing a lot of doom scrolling. So part of wanting a new hobby was like maybe to distract myself from doing so. Was very unsuccessful in doing that, but that was at least the initial hope. So especially 2017, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I enjoyed podcasts and kind of because of my English teacher background and also my current role where I'm more in the tech side of things now, I kind of married those two together to kind of start in looking into uh, creating a podcast. What would it take? How hard is it? And then the English teacher side of me said, well, it makes sense given my background to do something book related. Uh, so that's kind of how I fell upon and decided to come to creating this podcast. And it was just a whim. Didn't think it would go anywhere. I remember when I got 10 episodes in thinking, oh my, I'm in double digits. I can't believe I've, I've stayed with it. And now this will be episode 255. So quite the ride. I mean, I was going to say, let's not go too fast over the awe of double digits. But then I remembered, oh yeah, we've been doing this for a while you've reached the 50th anniversary the 100th episode anniversary you you put in the hours sir yeah and it's and that's and that's part of the whole like while these episodes can be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour there's always between edit and and setting up the interview and promoting it and things like that there's always like one or two hours added on to the actual interview itself when it takes to everything. So it, it is a time commitment and it has been a time commitment and I've generally enjoyed it, but it, but I want to uh, quit before I loathe it. Hmm. Got it. You want to avoid the Marin path where you can kind of taste the loathing in your ears (laughs) every once in a while. Uh, I'm curious about why, why essentially like as an educator, as an English teacher, I get that you love books, but you chose a very specific focus in young adult. And first of all, I'm grateful. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I'm wondering why was this sort of like the shelf you wanted to focus the podcast on? Great question. Because at first I did imagine it was going to be more wide open uh, in that the writers that I would talk to would not necessarily be within one category or within one genre. The problem with that is uh, because every genre, every category seems to have their own community, own specialization, mm-hmm. it was kind of very hard and overwhelming for me to kind of know like the romance scene, know like the, the heavy science fiction scene. Uh, whereas what made YA the natural beyond just the fact that uh, my English teaching background was that within the category of YA, 
you have all of those genres. You have romance, you have sci-fi, you have contemporary, you have, you know, historical. So it was all sort of encased within one category, within one uh, community, which is why, while it was always going to include my, that's why I kind of settled on that being by and large my focus. And you mentioned the YA community. Uh, What have you learned about that community in these past years in so many conversations? Um, I feel like sometimes like I'll speak from the author side of things like young adult is put in this little ghetto and just assumed to be, you know, passionate young people and passionate adults, new adults as they are often branded. Um, But, you know, a lowered, not even a lowered estimation, but just lowered expectations which is very unfair. Um, how, how would you, an expert in the field now, <laughs> qualify the YA culture? I would say, you know, just looking at the landscape of, of publishing and of, of media almost, you can look at YA publishing as probably the most close-knit. Now I say that because there are still obviously uh, issues and things that come up and, and scandals. But by and large, when you look at over, you know, anything from, you know, the uh, graphic uh, community, the, the science fiction community, the romance community, they're all very kind of fragmented, mm-hmm. whereas YA seems to be... Uh, the most connected and it's the largest and and while there's there's issues and flare-ups it's also uh the most supportive you'll have a a writer known for their contemporary work really going all out for another author who writes strictly fantasy and and so there's just a lot of interweaving uh a lot of closeness and it wasn't a community that i was very much connected to before this, uh, but obviously in in doing the podcast and kind of knowing the authors and and kind of tracking the community and the industry, while I didn't necessarily participate in uh, the community online, this was, the podcast was kind of my way of staying in the loop, I'd say. And we do have our fair share of scandals, especially if you step on Twitter. Do you feel like the reason that this community is so close-knit, that it sort of has like a little bit more connective tissue perhaps than some other literary communities is because it's or centered around this idea of young people that, you know, we have to protect the children who are in the room with us, who are reading the books with us. Uh, Is that something that makes a difference in your opinion? To a certain extent, to a certain extent. And it's hard to really put my finger on it. I don't know if it's it's because, you know, you have people writing for an audience that's different than themselves. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is like, uh, you know, a science fiction writer is by and large a science fiction reader and the intended, and that author is also the intended audience for their book. Whereas a YA writer, a middle grade writer, they are writing books for an intended audience that they are not themselves, if that makes sense. Um, 
so I think because of that, because of kind of the the nature of that, uh, and because of of having to be more aware of the issues when writing to a younger audience um, that aren't there for other genres and categories. Uh, that may be why uh, it all kind of culminates into a tighter community or a more connected community than most. And when coming up with sort of questions for you, I realized that some people might listen to your podcast, some, you know, budding authors, some budding editors, they might listen to the last episode of your podcast for insight for, you know, industry wisdom. So I will ask you the question that has plagued so many writers, publishers, um, educators, Brock, what is the difference between YA and regular A? And, and furthermore, what is the difference between middle grade and YA? Well, what's the difference between YA and uh, the rest of publishing? It's obviously, first and foremost, it's, it's the characters in the book are obviously going to be uh, of adolescent age, uh, but more so, uh, it, it also has to do with just, uh, there's more hope in, 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 in YA books by and large. Uh, and there's more, I'd even say, goes far as same plot. And I would also say as far as you see when it comes to what is considered literary publishing, literary fiction, there's much more, uh, what's the word I want to say? Um, there's much more of the author wanting to show off their writing abilities rather than tell the story where I think YA uh, can still have great writing and have impressive writing, but still the focus is going to be on the story itself. It's not so much the author that is on display, but rather the story and the writing that's on display is kind of how I have always felt that if you want to move just beyond the surface level of, oh, YA is, is young, is books for young people, about young people. I think it's also just kind of the, the intention of that book and the overall kind of feeling you get from that book. And then uh, YA to middle grade, I would say just middle grade um, beyond just a, a younger, even younger audience and, and therefore characters. There's always uh, much more hope, uh, much more, um, you're always, it's not a necessarily a doom and gloom message at the end. There's always that, uh, something that's hopefully uplifting or encouraging, uh, for the reader to take away from those books. Well, on that last point, I really love that answer because I've myself have struggled with defining what a middle grade book is, um, It's, and a lot of people always sort of like say, well, it's fluid. It can be whatever you want. It can be a bunch of hats in a box. Um, but I think latching on to the idea that hope 
is more uh, not valuable, but sort of more present in middle grade feels really right. Because I know that all the middle grade books that I pick up, there's always that sense that like, this book is going to feel good. Mm. Um, whereas when you pick up a YA book, this book might be a dystopia. This book might be the first of a 16 book, like <laughs> intense fantasy series. Like sure. um, the hope engine is more optional for young adult. So I think that's actually a very, very good point that I wish my publisher had told me <laughs> so many months ago. Um, but on the author side of thing for YA, I really, really agree with the idea that, um, you know, when you are trafficking in YA literature, there does seem to be that sense that your audience wants to be entertained. Right. Uh, you know, we've, I've read books by MFA writers. I've been in those workshops myself and the, that flexing that authors do where it's beautifully written, it's lyrical, it's all one conversation in a kitchen about metaphors, um, is not that present in young adult literature. It feels like young adult is really all about the story, all about the characters uh, facing forward and moving ahead. So yeah, I, I get your appeal to this subculture for so many weeks, so many years, and so many episodes. There's just something about it that's always moving. and. As a reader myself, I'm very grateful for, you know, all the work you've put into this, obviously. Um, when we first connected, I think it was just like, you have to promote your book. This person deigned to read your book. Please talk to them and promote your book. And then, you know, I stayed subscribed and I kept sort of like hearing authors I knew, seeing book covers I had seen before and was curious about. And I don't know, I became a huge fan honestly. And um, I guess I wanted to thank you. I'm not done like grilling you, um, but I just really wanted to sort of like thank you for creating this platform and allowing YA authors to really dive into their passions and what formed them. I think that that's incredibly instructive because we are hopefully all working on books that will one day be formative to young people. Um, and those conversations sound like nothing else that happens out there. Uh, whenever there's a new, whenever there's a new like hotshot YA book on the shelves, uh, I'll, I'll listen to one episode of a podcast or I'll read one interview and I feel like I'll get every, I'll get the same answer multiple <laughs> times. Um, and, you know, I understand that. I've given the same answer multiple times. Sure. Um, but your podcast always allowed for deeper conversation. Like I always come away from the episodes feeling like I know this author as a person and not just as a checkbox on the list of uh, hotshot YA books to look out for. And I'm curious how you approach these conversations. Um, what's your strategy in getting that amazing content each time? I, the strategy... Well, first, I appreciate the kind words, but if, as far as strategy, that's probably being too generous because I don't know if there is a strategy. Um, I never know what the person is going to say. Like I never have them. So the title, what book hooked you? I would say less than 1% of the time, I know what that author is going, that book that the author has chosen before I ask that question. Typically, I give them a basic rundown before we, I send them an, a Word document that has a basic structure of an episode so they at least know what to expect. 
But when we kind of hit record and start and I ask that question, uh, when they say that book that hooked them, that's the first time I'm hearing it. And depending on who the author is, if it's, if it's a debut author, I know nothing more than might be on their website. So I know the, their basic bio paragraph that they have, and I know the description of the book. And that's pretty much all I have to go on. And so it's more, it's more just listening and, and reacting to the person's answer. And I have sort of some, some go-to questions that I have if, if we need to switch gears or I need to, if I want to kind of explore one topic or another that I sort of go to, but by and large, it's more or less driven by uh, the person that's the guest and what they get into and what they bring up. And we kind of, kind of go from there. So that's sort of been the strategy. If I can, if, if we can claim that. And over the course of like so many conversation, what has, Hmm, what has surprised you about them? Like something you just weren't expecting that again and again, keeps popping up. It's, I don't, it's hard to maybe pick out a certain thing. Um, I had one that came up in our, our first interview. Or was it our second? No, it was our first interview. Um, and back then you mentioned that um, the Harry Potter books are liked, but that there are many authors who just have not read them. Right. Yeah. And to me, that was kind of a shock. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, you know, especially 2017, uh, Harry Potter and the uh, the fandom around it was was quite different than it is re- more recently, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's obviously you know that it was it almost seemed for most to be the ticket in order to get into the uh, world of YA books is you have had to have first uh, read all of Harry Potter and that's and. And so in the question that I always ask, you know, what's one book you're willing to read, willing to admit you never read, that has always been the most popular answer. And then followed by like Pride and Prejudice and things like that and like um, Ulysses and, and, and different books like that, Infinite Jest. Um, so that's one. But also I would say going to your original question, one thing that sticks out is just, you know, having talked to so many different authors. I've heard so many different paths uh, that these authors have taken uh, to become published, traditionally published. Uh, people that this is this is was their first idea ever. They wrote the book in you know six months. They sent it out to a handful of agents, got one, and now it's published. And then there's obviously others that this is the 10th book that they've written, but it's the first one that they've published. And then I've gotten the chance to talk to authors that have more than a dozen books published and are well into their career. Uh, So just that's always been the the most interesting part, uh, talking to different authors in different stages of their career with different backgrounds, different types of books um, and genres that I wouldn't maybe normally uh, have known about uh, to kind of get up on that. And then also a fun thing has been tracking 
authors' careers throughout this four and a half years, seeing these, uh, you know, debut authors where they where they later tell me that like I was there one of their first interviews they ever gave, and now they're uh, bestsellers, you know, with many books, uh, you know, that they've already released, and and then you see those authors that. Uh, they released a debut book and, and I have yet to hear from them again. Maybe there's, and that doesn't mean anything four and a half years isn't necessarily that long, but, you know, just seeing uh, the variety of experiences uh, before publishing and then how tracking sort of the publishing careers of these authors and, and how they develop over the years. And with this eye, you sort of have like an intimate eye on the industry because you get to talk to the writers themselves. You get to hear from them at the beginning of their careers, in the middle, at the end. Um, are you seeing or did you see some trends in YA that have progressed over the past four, four and a half years? Like from the industry perspective. So, so 2017, I started what? I started in like March or April of 2017. Uh, and The Hate You Give had just come out in February. So it was just like a month before. And so, you know, that book obviously is still a very popular book, but we don't always talk enough about how much that book kind of broke down a lot of barriers for when we're talking about uh, stories and voices from marginalized communities and and that book really uh, was a successful test case in that st stories from marginalized communities could be successful and so seeing how that has continued to grow not only in uh, stories by black authors but also uh, queer authors and authors of just various different descents and backgrounds and experiences, uh, how that has sort of grown uh, over the years. And of course, The Hate You Give isn't, isn't the first book uh, to do that, but I think it's, it was really uh, the biggest book, the most successful book, and, and maybe more or less because it had just come out and was ex kind of exploding on the scene just as this podcast was getting started. It was kind of maybe a... a a point on the timeline that I can kind of look at as I kind of track how things have, have developed over these past few years. Did you say that The Hate You Give was the biggest book? Because now I'm thinking about it. Has it been the biggest book these past four, four and a half years in terms of cultural impact and sales? I, I don't know if it has, but I have a hard time um, thinking of it another one that could top it same so yeah so that's why i would give it i would give it that that title or put it in that position and i will say as a black author i've been to schools i've talked to people who don't know what ya stands for and that's constantly the one that comes up again and again just like oh what's a ya book uh the hate you give oh okay um so it feels like that was truly perhaps the game changer of this era. And now it's on every uh, syllabus, not every syllabus, but a lot of syllabus, syllabi out there. And Angie Thomas is obviously 
you know, having an amazing career and has written more phenomenal books, but it does feel like if we had to pick a game changer, that would be the one. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe only like Simon uh, versus the Homo sapien agenda would be mm. another one that you could point to, but I would, but like I said, because uh, the hate you give had was out just before I kind of got started and, and just kind of seeing how, like even uh, the New York Times bestseller list seems to have uh, evolved since that time. Uh, and of course, the caveat, not saying that things are, are uh, Eden-like uh, across the industry, but uh, that definitely was a significant book and, and did have an effect on, on the community. And since we're in that area, in that neighborhood, we're driving by, um, <laughs> I'll ask something that, you know, comes up a lot in conversations about YA literature, which is the idea that uh, young adult books have gotten very, very, and I use all the quotation marks in the world, uh, woke lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't entirely agree with that. I feel like, well, I have my own personal views about that. Um, and I'm just cur- curious how you feel about it do first of all as an educator do you think that's true have you seen like a positive effect of this change is there even a change or is this just something people are noticing now because uh their grandparents are using the word woke i am so fascinated by your take on this so books and media can have an impact on the culture but the culture tends to drive the media so we kind of look at the books being uh, the cause of this, but really, you know, we we have a situation in which uh, a div- diversity of voices are are given the ability to speak out and present uh, their view on things, and because of of the increased voices, you're going to get more worldviews. You're going to get. Uh, more topics and issues are going to be brought up. And so that's where kind of the, in my view, kind of where uh, the increase in books that, that do more than just, you know, tell a space story or tell uh, a meet cute story, but, you know, go into different things uh, or just simply have characters in them that aren't just uh, straight white people. Uh, involved and but uh, and obviously because of that change because of of that shift it makes uh, people uncomfortable are they they're just they're just so unable to understand another situation that uh, it's they're they're hostile to it Um, it was in the news uh, recently uh, a high school that uh, banned, and it's happening across the across the country. So this story uh, will sound like many stories, but uh, there was a high school uh, near where I live, um, and actually, uh, one of my good friends was one of the teachers uh, that was involved in this, where 80, 85 books were put on a banned list, and all of those books were by uh, black and brown uh, writers by and large. There was a book. That was by, it was a children's book by a white writer, but it was about Rosa Parks. There was a set, there was an Elmo book that was 
um, banned from this list. So it's more, uh, it's coming more to the forefront just because uh, there is a change. There is a shift in media, not only, not only in books, but just in media uh, as a whole that are uh, allowing more voices to be heard. There's, it's easier to have different voices have a say in mainstream media than ever before. And those viewpoints are very jarring for those that just are unable to kind of see outside themselves and their own experiences. Yeah, and um, that's a great answer. And just, you mentioned that sort of school that was banning multiple books by black and brown authors. It feels like, and feel free to cut this question, um, right now the hot topic of the day as of October uh, 2021 is the teaching of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, if I barely have a sense of what YA and middle grade is, I truly have no idea what that ominous term means, but it feels like that's the thing that, you know, parents and adults are very concerned with. And uh, occasionally in my fun emails, you get the accusation that YA is just um, a gateway to that. Uh, something about referring to books as gateway. Uh, it's funny to me. Um, how do you, first of all, do you agree with that? Um, and how do you feel, where do you feel like this conversation is heading? It's a good question. And it's, you know, I work at a school, I have uh, school age children. So, and, uh, you know, and from obviously my, my teacher friend's experience and what he went through with his students through this, it, it has, it truly has nothing to do with these books, with critical race theory, it's are are the the outcry or the forces against critical race theory, I should say. And it has everything to do with uh, a rallying point, and and kind of looking for uh, that rallying point around something that that can be made the enemy. The easiest way to feel like a hero is to create an enemy. And so critical race theory has been given that moniker. Uh, and, and, there's, uh, and there's some people, uh, disingenuous people, uneducated, that kind of jump in on this and kind of drive it. Uh, but where will it end up? You know, that is yet to be seen. I, you know, I think uh, these, you know, it's kind of like they're trying, it's a lot of these bad actors, I'll call them, are, are, are trying to drag their feet. They're trying to hold on to the back bumper of the car and drag their feet as the car is trying to pull away. Uh, they're just going to get taken along for the ride eventually. Uh, but at the start of it, uh, it might be enough that it's there's just a delay in getting getting this car moving and, and getting it down the road to where it needs to be. And do we do you feel like sadly it's working? Like ultimately that this is an obstacle that YA books and YA authors and publishers will have to overcome having that trite 
in my opinion, conversation? I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll hurt publishing at all. Um, because it's not about publishing. It's about, it's about trying to get people on your cause. And, uh, you know, the bad actors don't really care about these books. Mm. They care about seeing, being seen as warriors protecting the flock against danger and, and being that hero. But to, to go, you know, to give them more credit than that, that they're going to have more impact than that, I don't, I don't see it happen. And maybe that's just, I don't, I'm not an overly optimistic person, but <laughs> looking kind of at the, the line of history, um, I think in the end, it's not going to be successful. I am very, very happy to hear that from an insider, um, because when I, whenever I discuss the matter with uh, other authors of color, they always fear and they have sometimes experienced the discussion sort of like encroaching on their um, art, meaning that, you know, people go to schools, they go to panels to talk about their books, talk about um, literature, and they get these heavy questions that are very rarely in good faith. And they feel like they have to be educated on it. And they also have to, you know, to the line because they're trying to sell book copies. So it's nice to know, to see, uh, it's nice to hear that from an insider perspective, this is not, you know, going to shift too much of the industry. Uh, to move away from something as fun as critical race theory, uh, pandemic, that thing happened, is happening um, a little more than halfway through your podcast uh, lifespan, uh, the world kind of changed. Sure. We now have very uh, different sets of concerns that we just didn't have before. How do you feel? And, you know, this is a broad question, interpret it as you will, um, that the pandemic has affected the YA game. I think... It, and I, I don't think we know quite for sure, because obviously, you know, we're dealing, uh, as we talk, with some infrastructure issues when it comes to publishing, uh, you know, publishers not being able to get books on shelves and things like that, distribution problems. Uh, so there's obviously that, uh, that that's going to have an impact. Um, and maybe, you know, years ago, we had a big fear that, you know, the industry was going to be entirely you know, Kindles and e-text and things like that. Uh, but that hasn't really borne out. Maybe these distribution problems drive it back towards that. Who knows? Um, as far as authors, it's obviously changed the game for them. Will an author, like I remember your first book, you got to go on a tour, uh, a book tour. I did. That was fun. I don't know if that's going to be an opportunity anymore as much. Um, and I think that's disappointing, but also uh, with Zoom and with some of the things that have come out of all of this, I think authors have more reach mm. um, to, to get in front of, of readers. Uh, you know, my kids have attended book events uh, online that they that we probably wouldn't have had the chance 
to go to or to see uh, if, if that person was touring. And, um, you know, I've heard stories of, of author events where, where no one shows up to the bookstore. Um, where, and so all that time and, and energy to, of travel and whatnot, uh, you know, didn't really result in anything. Whereas uh, with these online platforms and opportunities, uh, there's probably more there for the author. It's still obviously different. I work in virtual education where uh, teachers aren't face-to-face -face with students. And I know that how different of an experience that is. So authors not being face-to-face -face and interacting with their readers uh, won't always feel as fulfilling, um, but you know, maybe the, the ability to reach out beyond just those physical interactions uh, with going virtual will, will end up being beneficial to, to the readers and thus to the writers. Do you think that will stay in some capacity? Like after, hopefully, if there's an after, um, you know, in event person, in-person events are widely available again. Do you think of a stronger virtual component will remain alive in the YUL? I definitely think there will be a virtual component. My, I'm wondering is, will publishers, I'm assuming the publishers are going to be a, a lot less likely to put money up for physical author tours. Mm. It's going to be very limited, especially as we're talking about uh, distribution issues and, and things like that and, and sort of cost cutting measures. I think that's one thing uh, that's really going to fall, uh, fall off or greatly diminish uh, as we kind of come out of all of this. That's very true. I kept thinking my first book came out and I did this amazing tour with three other authors. Uh, it was like five, six cities, the Epic Reads event. And it was really, really great. But, you know, there were the cars, there were the flights, there was putting us up in hotels. Um, it was just, it seemed like a lot of uh, money, to be frank. Right. And the idea that that can sort of be bypassed feels both um, appealing to the publisher and a likely scenario. Right. Because I've also been at, you know, events where two people showed up. I haven't had a zero count yet, but I have had the, oh, there are two people in the front row. Hi, let's have a, a three-way conversation. Right. Um, and I think that is always a gamble, both for the authors themselves and for the venues and for the publisher. So that might phase out of the industry and that might not be a bad thing. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Well, you know, we'll just kind of have to ha see how things develop uh, and go from there. Um, to switch from a fun, a fun topic, to a fun topic to a fun topic to an actual like, hopefully fun topic for you now. Um, uh, Brock, what book hooked you as a child? So as a child, um, so the dirty secret is I was not a big reader for much of my young life seize him really I, yeah i loved story so like television i was locked into television hours of hours of television i watched um non-stop uh movies loved movies uh, but when it came to books i didn't love to read um and 
and that kind of carried with me throughout uh, young adulthood, you know, and even when I was in college, I was an English major, English education major, uh, but there were still many assigned readings that I just never bothered with. Um, so, but, so to think of a book that hooked me when I was a young adult, I would say, I would have to say this, but I have a caveat to it. I would have to say it was A Tale of Two Cities. Now, because okay. we read it in 10th grade, I never actually read the book. I bought the Cliff Notes <laughs> and read those and listened, you know, as, you know, I was, I was a good student, uh, listened in class as we would discuss the book and kind of the, the ending of the book. Uh, the sacrifice that is made at the end of the books, I remember just kind of blowing me away at, and so that book as a story hooked me, but again, I never actually read A Tale of Two Cities till I think maybe just 10 years ago when I actually quote unquote reread that book. So that's, that would be my answer. Honestly, thank you for the bravery of <laughs> dropping the Cliff's Notes a uh, confession here on your last episode and I I'm not mad at it because I was a fairly big reader when I was that age but none of the books I wanted to read were the books assigned in school they just weren't and I feel like the Cliff's Notes sort of lifestyle if we're going to call it that was a good way of like lightly hooking people into stories because uh, it wasn't just you know a commitment of 300 pages You didn't get the, the journey, certainly, but you did sort of get the sense of like, you know, setting characters, act one, act two. Like it took you on a condensed version sure. of that story. And I know a lot of avid readers now who openly confess to being reliant on Cliff's Notes when they had three, four books to read every month for school and also video games to play and social media to be on. Right. So I'm not mad at it. Thank you for no, saying no. it. Not a problem. And also, when I was growing up, when I was a young adult, there was no young adult genre. Mm. Um, so, like, I always think, like, the closest you either read The Hardy Boys or Sweet Valley High, and then you went to Stephen King. There wasn't really a, or, you know, the Star Trek, Star Wars novels. There wasn't really anything in between that. So there wasn't really, book-wise, there wasn't much there that really interested me at that time. And then kind of going to the Cliff Notes, you know, I eventually became an English teacher and really kind of look back and think that we put too much on uh, the, the reading of novels uh, the canonized novels and things like that. We really, instead of really using them of, as vehicles for, uh, for writing, for expression, for dialogue and discussion and things like that, it, it ends up becoming just, you know, reading checks uh, of, you know, chapter five, pop quiz the next day, things like that. So I mean, I've been very open about my, not disdain, but complete sort of like, ambivalence to the great gatsby i hate that book uh, so go. i love that book but i know i remember <laughs> I, i don't think it should be read in school because i think that part of the problem is we take these books 
Some are bad, but some are good. And we force them onto young people that, you know, there's nothing in, um, I'm trying to think of a good, there's nothing in the Scarlet Letter that really is going to speak to many young people mm. or do as good of a job as, as some of the more recent books that are out there. Um, and so you take a book that is a strong book. It's, it's going with Scarlet Letter. It's, you know, the symbolism and, and the different things that, that were done in there. It, it has merit, but you kind of, when you kind of push it upon readers, as opposed to let, allowing them to find it themselves, you end up kind of being a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to, to certain books. Yeah, it's the listification. Uh, I didn't say that word right, but you know what I mean, of what every teenager should read, which right. always feels like it's meant to sort of, I don't know, signal an opening of the mind, but to me it just feels so limiting especially to classrooms of young people who, you know, are, are not ready yet to appreciate the green circle uh, symbology of the Great Gatsby. And I've reread it later in life after college. I was like, okay, this is a very, very good book. But that uh, dislike of it was just coded into me very right. early. And one thing I've noticed that might've changed this past hmm, decade is the overlapping of YA literature um, that's targeted to young people and uh, schools, meaning that like the reading lists that young people have in class feels a lot more, uh, a lot closer to what young people are actually reading when they step into a bookstore. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I would think so. I would think, yeah, they, there's just the options they have now, especially because, you know, even even uh, 20 years ago, bookstores, when there, if when there were bookstores, were kind of strip mall, you know, stores like the size of like a UPS store or something like that. Like, and that's, there were just a lot of books, but, and maybe books that would be interesting to a young reader may have had like three shelves in that store. Uh, we're now just uh, the ability to find books on that is targeted to uh, your age level first, but then also your interest or background uh, is far and above anything uh, that has, that was available in the past. So, I mean, it's really, it's really a gift um, that young people and just readers in general have now that we hadn't had in the past. And now, as someone who spends a lot of time in schools, uh, what are you finding to be, you know, in young people's minds and hearts these days? What are like the big things that they carry around their lockers, classrooms, uh, that they're just obsessed with? So I think it's hard to say because I think part of it is, so like you and I are pretty steeped in books and publishing and you know, so I think, and we interact with readers. Uh, so we kind of maybe go to the place where, oh yeah, young people love to read or young people are, are always finding books and things like that. But I think still by and large, kids still have other things to do. Mm. Um, you know, I even see that in my own kids. My kids 
will both read, but you know, they're, they spend much more time streaming uh, shows or being uh, online and things like that, uh, as opposed to, you know, having book after book or always, you know, on the look for books. So there are certainly those young people that are, that are really kind of honed in, but I think still a majority of young people still maybe reading is, is a part of their life and they certainly are involved with it within school, but they still have other things. So to put my finger on like, what are they sort of like into and reading these days? It's probably, it's probably still a lot of the basics. Um, you know, whether that be, uh, you know, whether that be Harry Potter or whether that be, um, you know, the hate you give or things like that, they're still kind of centered around those big, what I'll call tentpole books. Um, but yet then you get, but those are obviously gateways to finding different books for those young people that really have a love for reading, have a love for story, have a love for books to kind of fall down and go into and get deeper into. So I can't really put my finger on what, you know, overall, what are kind of underlying trends that maybe the rest of uh, the rest of the world isn't seen because I think like young people have a lot going on. And so if reading is a part of their life, it's only one part. Uh, they're still into many other things and, and their attention is taken many other places as well. Yeah. I always say that, you know, reading is something, it's a passion that can be nurtured, but it can't be forced. Like no right. matter how many fun books you put in lists and try to sort of like shove into young people's eyeballs, uh, if they want to do something else, they'll just do something else. And I think a lot of a great thing about educators such as yourself these days is that they're not, uh, they're not killing the love of literature that some young people may grow to have. Um, they're just putting options out there and, you know, there are assignments, there's homework, obviously, but um, it's not this thing where if you don't read uh, Tale of Two Cities or The Great Gatsby um, or Of Mice and Men in the 10th grade, it doesn't feel like you're going to grow up hating books. I think I was part of that uh, generation of people who were very proud to say like in their late teens and early 20s, like, oh, I hate reading. And you don't come across that as much anymore. Versus, uh, eventually people find their way into this if this is something they're remotely interested in sure um brock what book is currently hooking you or has hooked you as an adult as an adult um so i would say so i'll give you the first book i, I really kind of think of when i think of like as an adult what was the book that kind of hooked me back to reading but and then i'll if i remember i'll i'll go to the latest book um but the first book that really kind of got me back into uh, being more of an avid reader than I ever was before was uh, Survivor by Chuck Palahniuk. Hmm. And um, Chuck Palahniuk, he's the guy that wrote Fight Club. Um, Choke. Choke. Yeah, he's an author. He's probably not for everyone. Uh, Fair to and say. It's and it's always hard to kind of recommend his books or talk about his books because some people 
are not going to connect and maybe should avoid his books. But uh, Survivor was a book that I picked up. And when I read it, it's probably, I think of it, looking back, I think of it as, as a book that really had me notice the writing and uh, kind of just seeing what the writing was doing and, and how it was still telling a story, but the writing in and of itself was fun, if that makes sense. Like there was, there were, there were tricks and there were little, and you could even say there were gimmicks or you could even say they were just methods of, of addressing a situation that were much different than, than, you know, what I had been reading in the past. And so that kind of, kind of lit a fire to kind of, uh, look into more books and try to find kind of similar uh, books that did the same thing that, that were fun in the writing. Uh, because again, when, going back to when I talked about, you know, literary fiction, how the writing can kind of be a little too show off and things like that. Uh, it can kind of be, it's showing off, but it's, it's boring. Like, I don't care, you know, how mm. in depth and new you can talk about your coffee getting cold, uh, in a, in a story, but to be able to kind of have that energy in the writing, that was something that really kind of jumped out. So that always kind of, when I think about what really sort of got me back in the writing, that's Survivor. That's the book that I kind of, I think I could put my finger on as maybe starting that. That is fascinating. I sometimes think that because you talk to so many different authors and you're an avid reader yourself, you're sort of like in the position to pick and choose all the strategies and tools that other writers use to sort of feed your own writing. But then I was thinking about this before this interview and I'm like, that might also be very, very intimidating as a writer, just to constantly be sort of uh, in conversations with people who are vomiting their approaches to writing at you as like their path to getting their stories uh, down. So I'm wondering, as a writer yourself, how has the podcast been instructive or possibly destructive to your own craft? Hmm. So I would say, you know, I never thought by starting the podcast that it would help me get published or anything along those lines. What I thought is I, I saw that in order to develop, I needed to kind of plug in uh, to the community, mm. but historically, and, and this has not changed, I am not an active participant on social media. And this has always been the case. I was always the lurker on message boards, things like that. So I have social media accounts, but I'm not actively engaged on them and never have been. And so part of what the podcast has been able to do is have me be involved in the community where I'm not only being able to uh, observe and take in some things, but also contribute. Like I'm, I'm not just uh, lurking on Twitter, but I'm also uh, able to interact, able to help in any way I can with the promotion uh, of these authors and these stories. And so uh, and so from that, obviously, from having these conversations and, and being 
within the community or are closely watching the community, you know, you do kind of come to understandings about uh, different viewpoints. You kind of start understanding uh, craft elements, things like that. So there are, there are benefits uh, because I knew I wasn't going to, you know, have the time to, to go and didn't know if I necessarily wanted to uh, pursue an MFA and uh, around me, writers groups, I tried a few, but couldn't find anything that really kind of felt comfortable and stuck. And so, so the, this podcast sort of became a way for me to, to kind of grow and, and, and develop and be a part of, of a community and contribute to a community uh, that would also, you know, have me learning and, and growing. So that's how I would kind of think about it. That's so great. And what are you working on right now? I'm guessing without the podcast as like a sort of Damocles over your head, you'll have sure. more time to write or, you know, watch Squid Games or just go on <laughs> walks. Just time is yours to make with whatever you want. Um, but on the writing side of things, uh, what are you working on these days? What am I working? So the stuff that I write tends to be kind of contemporary, kind of speculative, YA or upper middle grade stories. So, so working on a few projects, um, and I've I've had a few projects that I've sent out and, and I've got some interest, but nothing ever really sort of developed. And it's never something I've sort of injected into this podcast. Like this is kind of maybe the first time I'm even talking about it. And mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily even comfortable doing so because it's it's I never wanted the the idea of that this podcast was a vehicle to promote myself necessarily. Um so you know, continuing to write that and then like I sort of want to explore other things. And I don't even know what that is yet, uh, but just kind of been working on things that maybe don't fit into something or have a place anywhere in a publishing marketplace, but maybe it's more for me. And maybe I didn't necessarily have the time to do before. Like, Right now I'm playing around with an idea that like I've heard people's stories of how uh, they used to write something for a holiday, like for, for, I think, uh, I can't think of the writer's name, but he used to write a story and give to all his friends on Valentine's day. And that was like his gift to them. Uh, And so things like that, like that would be, that's an idea, like something that, that maybe is only seen by like a few people. And that's really the only audience for, and maybe that pull and then I have somewhat of a creative background um while I'm not uber talented like like thinking about how maybe art can play a role in that so it's very kind of as I'm talking about it it makes no sense it's a bunch of gibberish because right now it's this enigma shaped idea in my head but all that is to say uh continue to to write some stories but also uh do some kind of exploring and do just kind of things that i'm not even sure what the end product is or what to do once i have an end product but more just uh more just going on the journey and enjoying that journey because part of part of 
being involved in the podcast, talking to the authors, being involved in the community is when it came to my writing, I was so much so focused on the end product and what would then happen with that end product, what I would do with it after that, Mm -hmm. that I wasn't always taking the time to enjoy the ride is what I'd say. So I'm going to try to enjoy the ride a little bit more. I think that's something that every creator, every writer can benefit from hearing. Just sometimes like we get lost in the miasma of, you know, social media, of publishing, of coming up with a book pitch, coming up with a manuscript and just like, quote unquote, making it that we lose. I personally lose sight of just the joy of telling a story and sharing it with people and just like getting getting this thing that's locked in your head out for other people to just sample. First of all, I also want to say that that wasn't gibberish at all. Like the idea of just like coming up with something specifically yours and intimate to share with other people in your life feels um, very heartening. I have one friend that did that. I don't, I don't think they still do it, but um, it was for the Christmas season. They would come up with this like three page uh, comic book sort of uh, reflecting on the year through this little avatar character of themselves that they created. And I was always so delighted when I would get like the envelope and it was be those three pages of a story that was not written specifically for me. I think it was written for like 40 people. Um, but it is a form that exists out there and I admire it a lot. I'm, I hope you'll loop me in when you start sharing it with the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. If it, if it ever comes to that, but hopefully it will, but yeah, just, uh, just playing and, and, and seeing where it goes playing let's all play more oh brock i adore <laughs> you you are not my first interview you were like my f- uh, fourth maybe overall um you were the funnest one sorry to npr it. and <laughs> i feel like now it's become this weird tradition that like oh if i ever write something or do something i have to talk to brock about it at some right. point uh whether it's like a new ya book a very controversial uh, memoir, all that stuff. It's just, um, for me, you've been kind of like an essential pillar of my author life. And I'm very, very grateful for all the work you've put into this. And I know other people are as well, readers, educators, authors who don't just get platforms that take them all that seriously early on. Like they sometimes feels like interviews are um, stages where you sell you open your suitcase and try to sell the thing you're carrying around. Um, but to have an interview that was an actual conversation about with someone uh, about your life, about your journey from reader to writer was really meaningful to me. So I want to thank you very, very deeply. I appreciate it. Um, and I accept that compliment, even though it's hard for me to accept praise sometimes. Yeah. I can hear it in your voice. (laughs) And really, like, I still, even after four and a half years, don't really, it doesn't really compute that people actually listen to this. And if, and if you told me no one has ever listened to, to a single episode, I wouldn't have a hard time believing you, just because it is sort of an enigma. And it is a, it is a situation where, yeah, you hear people that reach out and things like that, but like, you don't have the audience sitting in front of you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have data of, of how many lessons and things like that, but that's just numbers on a screen or a spreadsheet. Um, so yeah, like 
I always sort of, again, this was a hobby that I sort of just kind of did for myself and let other people listen to it. So I'm glad they did listen to it and continued to listen to it. Uh, so it's been, it's been fun. And like, I remember when I started off, my biggest fear in starting this off was how was I ever going to get people to agree to do this podcast? Like that was my biggest hesitation in all of this other than putting myself out there. That was another thing, but getting people to agree to come on and talk to me because I was, I was no one. Uh, and so, but then to see how that sort of has developed where I started for, you know, a publicist would never return my phone, you know, never return the email at the beginning. And now they're the, by and large, they're the ones uh, that are reaching out the most here kind of in the final year or so. Like that's how I've gotten most of uh, the last few, the last years, like guests are purely from publishers kind of since I've sort of been quote unquote established uh, and them kind of seeing that and reaching out. It's been sort of a wild ride and, and has blown out surely any expectations I've had for any of this. And there's no need for quotation marks. You are very much established. I was one of those people who's publisher, publicist, HarperCollins, uh, basically told me, oh, no, we got you this amazing interviewer. Um, you're going to have a great time. And they're kind of a big deal. And Rock had a great time. You're kind of a big deal. And when it comes to podcasts, I always say that, like, I always think that uh, podcasts are the new TV and that they have seasons. So... Right. I could be wrong. I'm not like dictating your future, but I see you as a Larry David, curb your enthusiasm type who's like, there might be a next season. When? Whenever I feel like it. Um, and I hope there will be and that you'll keep having these conversations with people because they're really, really rare out there. And you did something special here. Truly. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And uh, like I said, I was just trying to give this podcasting uh, thing a shot and anything that kind of came after that um, was sort of extra. And so, and uh, having met so many great authors, uh, you know, including yourself and, and one of the great um, things about this is the times that I've gotten to meet the authors in person uh, and just my interactions with them. And, and, you know, you and I are, are frequently interacting, texting, things like that. You know, it, it's it was it's really been enjoyable. And and while this chapter is over, and will there be another chapter, podcast wise? I don't know, uh, but it's something I'll look back on. And these five years, obviously, when you factor in everything that has gone on outside the world, has sort of been a whirlwind, and that's all sort of lined up with this podcast it's sort of hard right now to kind of look back and reflect on it um but i once i'm able to i'll really uh be proud of myself have enjoyed uh the experience enjoyed sort of the people and the stories that i've met from it it was truly a joy to be a part of it and lastly i will ask if you could pick one question right now that you wish I could ask you that you wish I had asked you, uh, what would it be? This is a good question because I don't, um, dude, interviewing is hard. You've been doing like a killer stellar job. It is very hard to do well, what you do. I will well, say. here's, here's the other thing. Here's what other people don't realize. 
editing makes you sound much more competent than you really are. Like if people only heard the word salad that I stumble through sometimes <laughs> when asking a question, because again, I don't, I have some, maybe I'll have some questions prepared or maybe I'll know sort of what I want to say, but by the time that idea of a question comes out of my mouth, it becomes 25, you know, caveats to some meandering question that by the end, the author is completely confused at. So I have to like cut that out and restate it in a way that sounds intelligent. So I'm sure a lot of my competence have been masked because I've, I edit these a little bit before they come out. Um, but a question to be asked. I feel like you really covered a lot. Like I could yeah. ask you what, who, what was your worst interviewer, but I know you won't answer. Or if I, I, No, actually, I know the answer and I know you won't put it in, which is very fair. Well, and I know who you know, I would say, but I don't mm. even, would I even say that? I would have to, I've, I've said this in the past and I may keep this in. Some people, when they uh, do a podcast, it, it's completely transactional. I'm getting the interview. I get the content for my podcast and they get promotion. And that is the relationship. It is a business transaction. And that's all it, all it really is. Um, and so it's completely business. Whereas other people are in it more for what I'll call the hang. Like they're more kind of open to having a conversation and, and talking with another person, that person being me. And, you know, it, it's, it's more fun. It's my lighthearted versus, you know, just straight interview and then we're done. So it, I've always enjoyed the more kind of the hangs uh, more than just kind of the business transactions of things. But I understand that that's what this is. In the end of the day, this is, this is promotion. Uh, for most authors. And so uh, I've accepted that. I do those. I've, I've done those interviews and, and that's fine. And, but, you know, when I look at some of my favorites, it's always, you know, it's always the hang interviews. Uh, and, and it's always those interviews where even after we stop hitting record uh, and you and I do this all the time where we still, you know, continue to talk afterwards, just between the two of us. And I've got to have that uh, with a lot of authors, big and small. Um, and so those, those are kind of really, when I look back, really sort of the highlights in all of this. And even the transactional ones, not to put sort of like color to your own experience, but it feels like it's really hard to talk about this stuff, I will say, um, to sort of like have all this, you know, what books influenced you, what's your creative process like, all that stuff that you naturally know, but that's in your head. Sometimes it's really hard to just like get it out there, get it into coherent words sure. and sentences. Um, and you create a really nice and fun space for that to happen, for people to just be like, hmm, I don't know, let me go on a tangent. Let me go on another tangent. And eventually, hopefully, sometimes it all like coalesces into something uh, substantial and coherent. Yeah, it, hopefully it ends up that way. <laughs> what are kids into god i feel old asking that but beyond like, books like what is like occupying their entire uh mind space is it squid games is it just like tiktok people frying soap and eating it what is winning 
still, and I probably, other than working at a school, although I don't teach anymore, so it, so I'm not as maybe plugged in. I do have a 12 and a 14 year old of my own. So mm-hmm. I may be plugged into there. Um, but it is things you would expect, like the social media, like uh, YouTube and, and TikTok and, you know, different things like that, being kind of aware of that. What kind of always strikes me is how much access young people have today to all media ever. So it's not unheard of for uh, a young person to watch a movie from the 80s, listen to uh, a playlist from the 60s, and then watch, stream, binge stream uh, a Disney television show from 10, 15 years ago. Like they, they obviously operate in the present as far as trends and, and things like that, but they have so much more of the world open to them that they can kind of pull from and watch and take in uh, than, than ever before. And then do you feel like, cause sometimes you think that, oh, well, every, all kids are on Minecraft and they're only consuming stuff for the past, from the past like three, four years. But have you seen that spread in your own kids? And, you know, when you used to teach in person, like of people consuming for the past, from the past 10, 20, 30 decades? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say that. I know like my kids, that's like my kids, uh, you know, my son will be watching the original Ghostbusters movie where my daughter has gone back and watched the original Hannah Montana series. Uh, even though she's a little bit older than that now, she just, you know, that's kind of what she wants to do. And, and he'll watch that movie while playing Minecraft, which Minecraft I think it's been around for like 15, 20 years now. And like, it's older than we think. Whereas my daughter is her new thing is to crochet while she's watching Hannah Montana. So, and she's awesome. taught, and she taught herself how to crochet by watching YouTube videos. So, um, you know, it's just, there's, there's much more opportunity, much more out there to be consumed and interact with. And so we like to kind of get on uh, young people for not knowing uh, these big touchstone tentpole things. Like if a, if a kid ever said they didn't know who um, Kurt Cobain is, you know, there, there are many adults that would have a conniption about that, but they know so much about when it comes to the media landscape and have so many touchstones on it that, that it's pretty incredible and pretty, pretty awesome that, that they have so much access to so many things. And I always feel like I know we're the grown-ups in the room, but I always feel like it's kind of unfair that, um, you know, a young person doesn't know Kurt Cobain and we gasp in disdain. But for the life of me, I could not pick out like Jojo Siwa from a lineup. And <laughs> that that just means that I'm culturally illiterate in a lot of ways. I should know who that is. There, there's value in how much uh, young people are able to sort of like hold in their he- heads and in their right. interests and lives. Do you know who Jojo Siwa is? I do know who Jojo Siwa is. Um, We're recording this at the end of October. She's currently on Dancing with the Stars. uh, And she will probably win it. And so I don't know when that show is over, but maybe I'm uh, predicting future when this comes out. Uh, But I also knew who she was 
maybe five years ago when she was more of an internet person uh, and you could buy, and my daughter would buy her, her hair bows from, from Claire's. Um, so, yeah. So, and, and that's always, it's, it's been cool to kind of, because obviously three and a half, four and a half years ago, I now have a 12 and 14 year old. I had a, a nine and seven year old. So uh, to kind of now have two young people in the house uh, living with me and kind of have much more sense of, of what it's like to be a young person uh, now and how much different it is uh, from my experience and, and what's still the same too. It has uh, remained. What's an evergreen thing that stayed, not constant, but that stayed around all this time? Like- Kids have always wanted to be seen, wanted to have a connection. Um, and that's always been the case. Mm-hmm. How, they, how they choose to be seen, how they choose to find that connection is completely based on what, what tools society gives them. Uh, and kids of today have much more of those tools than what you or I had growing up. Um, and so, you know, and so that's awesome. Um, there's obviously, and with any situation, there's obviously drawbacks to that, um, problems with that. Uh, but, you know, they still want the same things uh, that you or I wanted uh, as a child and as a young person. They just have more things at their disposal to try and get that. That is very true. I. I'm fascinated because sometimes I'll have a conversation with a young person who's like deep into TikTok and TikTok alternative number two and Instagram culture. And, you know, the first impulse is to say like, whoa, you're so young and different from me. But really, I think back to when I was on AIM and MSN Messenger all day and message board, it, it really does all speak to that same urge to connect. And I think to bring it back to the YA of it all, like it does those books at their best are that creative connective tissue between young people and not even the author and just the world, like writing characters that uh, young people recognize themselves in and that older readers can also uh, recognize themselves in is like the fuel of that subculture of YA. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this is a good ending point. I think the biggest lesson I learned in this podcast is I always understood when I always knew to be true when someone said that was marginal from a marginalized community uh, that they never saw themselves in media. I always knew that to be true, mm-hmm. but as a straight white man who lived a fairly comfortable upbringing, I didn't have a full understanding of it. Like I really didn't, it wasn't ingrained in me. I had a very surface level understanding. So being more involved in the YA community through this and talking to a variety of authors uh, from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives and, and hearing their stories about, they may have been my age, but growing up how they didn't see themselves. You know, I never not saw myself in media. Uh, you know, I don't, so I can't comprehend what the experience is like, but I understand that it is a valley, 
valid experience, an important experience uh, for those to have. So if I, anything that I was able to give anyone else through this, um, great, that's been a bonus. But I think the biggest thing that I take away from is a better understanding of that experience that others have growing up and how fortunate we are that we're living in a time in which those so many young people won't have that same experience going forward. I'm trying to think of a nice closing line after this because I was just like smiling and nodding. It just felt like the perfect goodbye. So now I just feel like the Ferris Bueller little talking head by the side of the credits because that was just, that was so great. Well, thanks. That was off the top of my dome, but actually it wasn't. I, I shouldn't say that. It was, it has been something uh, that I consistently think about uh, just through conversations and kind of th mining my own experience in life uh, and comparing it to society and, 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 and others. So, and I do love that your podcast has been able to make space for like so many diverse voices. Sorry, I can only say it in that cartoonish voice now. <laughs> it's very obnoxious. Um, without, I don't know, taking away, not even, you have these conversations, and a conversation is by nature, you know, by definition, something that happens between two people, but it never feels like it's a competition or it never feels like you're, you, are very aware of where the ping pong ball has to go next. You just let these people, these authors, these storytellers, like share what books hooked them, share what culture shaped them, what their lives were like. It always feels like a very nurturing space for creators. And I'm really super grateful for that. Well, thanks. And I was glad to be able to provide the platform. Uh, and again, I got much more out of it uh, than probably anybody else did. So when I accept any praise, I it feels off just because I feel like this was this experience was very much self-serving in many ways. So the fact that anybody else got out of it is 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 strange almost to me uh, because I was just kind of doing this as a hobby for myself, and you know never made any money off of it, never expected to because it was just like I could have been building birdhouses. Instead, I made a podcast, basically. But isn't that also like the perfect reflection of what the writing process is? Like there's nothing more self-serving than just like having stories in your head that you want to uh, put into the world and have people read and tell you what they think about them. So I feel like that kind of like perfectly mirrors the craft we're all following. I think so. I think so. Well, I think that's that. Ben, I want to I want to say this on live that I appreciate uh, you putting up with me through all four episodes of this. Uh, the friendship that we have growing out of this has been great, uh, and it's been great kind of being able to kind of follow your career, be a part of 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 watching you kind of grow and develop uh, into an author and. Thanks for you know agreeing to be on this last episode. This is just payback because I praised you earlier. Thank you, Brock. <laughs> Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And there it is. The last episode of the podcast. 
Again, thanks so much for Ben, Philippe, uh, for coming on and doing this for me. There was so much we didn't get a chance to talk to him about. Uh, he was a writer on Only Murders in, in the Building, the Hulu uh, series. We never got to talk much about that since it's been out. Hope you'll check out uh, those episodes. Check out his books. All of that is in the description of this episode. You can also check out BrockShelley.com for any of the other episodes the other 254 i just want to say thank you to everyone that's listened to this podcast uh, thank you to all the authors the publicists the agents everyone that i had to work with to help pull this off all the incredibly talented kind and wonderful authors that i got to meet through this uh, it's really been a pleasure it's really been such a great experience over these four and a half years uh, i cherish it Again, thanks so much for everyone's support, all the emails, kind words over the years, uh, and listens. So with that, I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading.